Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And today, we're going to head back down to Texas. So this will be our second time around in the great state. Uh, But before we go, I just wanted to take a second and thank some of our listeners in Indiana. Well, all of our listeners in Indiana. We have some in Fort Wayne, Washington, Jeffersonville, West Lafayette, and Indianapolis. So thank you so much for your patronage. Yes, thank you. If you guys already haven't checked out our webpage, please go to criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. And we would ask that you subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. And also, we'd love to hear from you. We're still holding out that hope for one person to contact us. I think in a previous episode, Maddie, you said they would get sent some swag if they did reach out to us, that first person. So everyone's still in the running. (laughs) Because as of right now, we've gotten nothing. (laughs) Correct. But hey, we see that you're listening. So obviously, if you're staying with us, there's something that you like about it. So that's always great. And then on whatever platform you're using, if you have a chance to go ahead and hit subscribe, that way you'll get our episodes more easily. And you can also leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing on there. Give us some stars and really let us know that you're out there. Yes, we'd appreciate it. So like I said, we're going to go down to Texas this week. So I'm sure a lot of people listening are familiar with this case. It is is the University of Texas mass shooting in 1966. So to start, I'm just going to go and talk a little bit about Charles Whitman, who was the shooter in this case, and give some of his background. Charles Joseph Whitman was born on June 24, 1941, in Lake Worth, Florida. His father, Charles Adolphus Whitman, was a plumber, and his mother, Margaret, a stay-at-home mother. They would end up having three children, Charles being the oldest. Charles was a bright young man, scoring 99th percentile on an IQ test he took when he was a child, and his father was very strict with high expectations. He was also said to have somewhat of a violent temper. So Charles's father had been abandoned by his parents when he was six years old. His mother had placed him and his two brothers in the Bethesda Home for Boys in Savannah, Georgia. He stayed there for nine years, and it was a very strict environment. And he took that through when he was a father himself to Charles, and again, was very strict strict with high expectations. He was a perfectionist, and he expected every member of his family to behave in that way as well. And when that didn't happen, he had somewhat of a temper and was violent and somewhat abusive. And again, I say somewhat because it's hard to say the true extent of it. There hasn't been much clarity on to what extent he was violent with his family. Charles was an Eagle Scout and was familiar with guns in his early life. His father had a large gun collection and was an avid hunter and Charles participated in that sport as well. He graduated high school in 1959. One month after his graduation, he joined the Marines. Now, some say that his father didn't know that he had joined the military, and once he figured it out, had tried to actually have his enlistment revoked, but he was unsuccessful because at that point, Charles was 18 and there was no reason to revoke his enlistment. A friend of Charles said that he had been inspired to enlist after an incident where he had come home drunk and his father had beaten him and threw him into a pool. So at that point, he was pretty much ready to cut his losses and enlist in the military. During his time in a South Carolina boot camp, he earned his sharpshooter ranking. He scored 215 out of 250 possible points on the examination and was very skilled. And there's a quote from his father as well, talking about him when he was around 16, being able to shoot the eye of a squirrel when they were hunting. If he would aim for it, he could shoot it. And that was when he was 16 years old. 
After boot camp, he was moved to the Navy base at Guantanamo, where he served for 18 months. He then applied for a Navy scholarship program, intending to get his degree in mechanical engineering and then be a commissioned officer after that. So it's one of those programs where the Navy will provide a scholarship for you and then you'd be a commissioned officer once you get your degree. But he was in the Marines. Did that matter? I don't believe so. Or could anybody in the military apply for the Navy scholarship? Well, because the Navies and Marines are paired to some extent. I mean, it's Army, Air Force, Navy, and then within the Navy are the Marines, right? Sure. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. I don't know. You might be right. I never thought of it that way. I always thought they were four separate branches of the military. I'm pretty sure that it's three separate branches and then the Marines is sort of a subset of the Navy. But now I feel like I should check that before we put this podcast out. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Uh, It says the United States Marine Corps came under the Department of the Navy. However, it is considered to be a distinct separate service branch and not a subset of the Navy. The highest ranking Marine officer, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, does not report to a Navy officer. But it's part of the Department of the Navy, right? Correct. I'm kind of correct. That's why the scholarship went through the Navy scholarship program. Right. So there you go. We added a little worthless trivia knowledge to this. For those that don't understand how the military works. And we've been doing a lot of military cases lately. We should really educate ourselves more on this. Who was our other military case? We just did one last week. Oh, the one we just recorded. (laughs) And we had another one. The other ones we had, I think they've just been suspects. So he applied for the Navy Scholarship Program, again, intending to get his degree. He entered prep school in Maryland before being approved to enter the University of Texas in Austin, again, for mechanical engineering. Once at the university, he wasn't a very good student. And when I read some psychologists that looked over sort of his lifetime and his records and everything, a lot of them thought that because he had grown up in such a strict environment and had then moved into the military with, again, a very strict environment, moving into the university where he was more independent and could make his own choices was very different for him and he didn't cope well with that. He struggled with his grades and he got sort of a reputation as a practical joker and not taking his studies very seriously. There was also an incident where Whitman and some of his friends were caught poaching a deer when a passerby reported his license plate to the police. Now, when the police went to question Whitman about it, they found him and two of his friends butchering the deer in the dorm shower. Could you think of something scarier to happen in a dorm shower? I mean, I'm sure it looked like a murder scene there, but ew. You watch a lot of horror movies, don't you? No. Have you ever seen... No, you don't? No. Why did I think that you like horror movies? No, I don't enjoy them. Well, if someone out there is writing a horror movie, I think that would be a perfect scene. Butchering a deer in a dorm room shower? Yeah. Could you think of something more creepy walking into a dorm room shower? I mean, I'm sure some nasty things go on in there, but... The athlete's foot alone is disgusting. I can't (laughs) imagine the butchering of a deer in a shower. So... In February of 1962, he met Kathleen Lessener, an education major studying at the University of Texas. Five months after they met, they were engaged, and they married just a month after that. They married in Kathleen's hometown of Needville, Texas, and Whitman's family drove from Florida to attend, and their wedding actually took place on the 22nd anniversary of Charles's parents' wedding. So they tried to keep the date the same as a tribute to his parents. Everyone in Kathleen's family described him as an intelligent and well-mannered. Whitman's grades improved somewhat over the next few semesters, but it wasn't enough to meet the scholarship requirements, and in February of 1963, he was put back on active duty and the scholarship was revoked. When he was moved back to active duty, he was assigned to Camp Lejeune and was promoted to 
lance corporal automatically upon his return to active duty. He was an exemplary Marine, but had a bit of a gambling problem. And in November of 1963, he was court-martialed for gambling, having a personal firearm on base, and for having threatened a fellow officer about a loan. It was a $30 loan, which at the time I believe was around $150. And I also believe that it had something to do with the gambling that was going on. He was found guilty of those counts and was confined for 30 days and then assigned to 90 days of hard labor and also received a demotion to private. And this was actually a few rankings lower than the Lance Corporal that he had attained. So it was he was very much downgraded. He really resented the military for having taken away his scholarship and also for his punishment after the court-martialing. In 1964, he was honorably discharged. He returned to the University of Texas studying architecture and working as a bank teller on the side to support his wife. Apparently, they were also somewhat financially reliant on Charles's father, which he also resented a bit. He didn't want to be dependent on his father because of that background they had with the violent temper and the abuse. In 1966, Charles went to a therapist stating that he was suffering from violent headaches and was concerned about his mental health. His parents had separated a few months earlier and more and more he was feeling the stress mounting and experiencing violent urges. The psychiatrist told him to come back for another appointment, but he never did. In a letter he wrote to himself on July 31st, 1966, at 6.45 p.m. And we know the time because he had attached that to the letter itself. He says, I don't quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I've recently performed. I don't really understand myself these days. I'm supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I can't recall when it started. I've been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur, and it requires a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. It was after much thought I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight after I pick her up from work at the telephone company. I love her dearly, and she has been as fine a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. I don't know whether it's selfishness or if I don't want her to have to face the embarrassment of my actions, face the embarrassment my actions would surely cause her. At this time, though, the prominent reason in my mind is that I truly do not consider this world worth living in and am prepared to die, and I do not want to leave her to suffer alone in it. I intend to kill her as painlessly as possible. Similar reasons provoked me to take my mother's life also. Now, the letter stops there, and in the margins it then reads, Friends Interrupted, as at that time his wife and a friend had returned to his home. The friend later described Charles as relieved that evening, as if he had solved some sort of problem that had been going on. Now, after his parents had separated, Charles's mother had moved to an apartment in Austin, most likely to be closer to her son since Kathy, his wife, had been sharing problems that Charles had been having. So aside from sort of his mental state, he had also become a bit violent with Kathy. There were two occurrences where he had struck her and was just not stable. So after, again, the separation, his mother came to try to help with that situation. On the night of the 31st, he went to his mother's apartment and stabbed her and shot her. He left a note on her body stating, truly sorry that this was the only way I could see to relieve her sufferings, but I think it was best. After having killed his mother, he went back to his home and stabbed his sleeping wife. I don't think that's painless though. No, I, I've never been stabbed in my sleep, but I'm going to guess that no, that's not the most painless way to die. I know. I've cut my hand cooking, but I that hurt. I can't <laughs> imagine being stabbed. Go ahead. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> I'm sorry. No, I can't either. I I mean, this whole thing, it's just, it gets worse and worse. On August 1st, the next morning, 1966, Charles went and purchased two guns and ammunition, which was on top of his already heavy artillery. And his demeanor when he went into these shops seemed normal. And he had made the excuse of he was going to kill some sort of animal. He was going hunting for some sort of small animal. And that's why he needed the guns and ammunition. In total, the ammunition that he had on him was a Remington. 700 ADL, a universal N1 carbine, a Remington model 141. Now those three weapons are all rifles. He also had a series model 60 shotgun on which he had sawed off the barrel, an S&W model 19, a Luger P08, and a Gelsley Brescia. And those three were all pistols. A little after 11 a.m., he parked his car near the main building on the grounds of the University of Texas in Austin. And this main building, so if you see it, it's a very large face of the building that widens out and then in the center is a tower and that they referred to as the main tower. He was dressed in overalls and had a duffel bag. Now the main tower as I said is the centerpiece and it is a 307 foot tall building with 27 floors. It houses some specialized libraries but mainly administrative offices. He entered the building and went to the elevator but it wasn't working. An employee activated the elevator and he thanked her and went up to the 27th floor. From there he went up the stairs towards the observation deck. It was at this point in the reception area that he encountered Edna Towsley. He hit Edna on the back of the head with the butt of his rifle, splitting her skull. He then dragged her body and hid her behind a couch. At that point, two people came in from the observation deck. Now they saw his weapon apparently the rifle, but for some reason they assumed that he was pigeon hunting from the observation deck and that's why he had a weapon. Which when I read that, it felt really odd to me, but then I had to think back to the fact that I grew up in an age where these sort of shootings happen often. And as soon as you would see somebody that looks suspicious or with a duffel bag or with a gun, it would set off alarm bells. And this is 1966. It just wasn't even a thought back then that this sort of thing could happen. Mm -hmm. I grew up in an age, we didn't have school shootings. We didn't have school drills like that. We had, you know, you had your fire drills and things like that, but we didn't have school shooting drills or intruder drills. And you could walk in and out of schools free and clear universities being the same way. So seeing somebody with a gun, you'd automatically go with, oh, it's an observation, Jack. There's pigeons. Yeah, he's up there to clear out the pigeons. So the two people that came in exited the reception area. And at that point, Charles moved the desk to try to block the door so that nobody else could come in. Around 11.45, a family was walking up the stairs. So the tower itself, just to give a little bit of background as well, is a very popular tourist attraction. So people that were coming to visit the university, families that lived in the area, they would visit this tower and they would go and get a view of the university from the observation deck. So that's why this family was visiting. They walked up the stairs and when they arrived at the desk, Mike, who was 19, and Mark, they were brothers, pushed past the desk because they didn't really know again what was going on. When Charles saw them, he fired the shotgun towards them, hitting Mike in the shoulder and Mark in the head. He then shot down the stairs, striking the boy's aunt, Marguerite, and their mother, Mary Frances. Mike called for his father and uncle, who was with them, to run for help. Mike would survive the injuries, and Mary Frances was paralyzed from the neck down. The other two would not survive. After the encounter with the family, Charles shot Edna in the head and proceeded to the observation deck. Once he reached the deck, he began shooting at the people below. From the deck, you have a view of a lot of cafes, shops, 
books, libraries, and obviously being a, being a university, students are roaming around. The first student shot was Claire Wilson, and she was eight months pregnant at the time. She was shot in the abdomen. A passing student, Thomas Ekman, ran to help her, and he was shot and killed. A passerby, Rita Murphy, lay with Claire, comforting her and trying to keep her conscious. Claire would survive the attack, but her unborn child did not. Robert Boyer was then shot in the lower back and killed. DeVroe Huffman was shot next, and he feigned death and survived his injuries. Now, as this shooting is going on, it wasn't until four minutes into the spree that the first call was made to the police. There was nearby construction, so people in the area thought that that's what the noise was from, that it wasn't actually gunshots. And even when they saw people lying on the ground, they thought it was some sort of theater group or that they were war protesters, and that's why they were on the ground. They didn't realize had been shot. At 11.52, officers began to arrive, two of which took cover behind a column stone wall, Charles was able to shoot through a six-inch gap in the columns, killing one of the officers, which again just speaks to how skilled a marksman he was and how precise these attacks were. At this point, people surrounding the area began offering anything they could to help. Some people were helping to direct traffic to keep people away from the area, while others were getting their personal weapons trying to shoot back at Charles and stop these attacks. And this was Texas, so you know there was a lot of personal weapons. People were armed. <laughs> now, officers trying to get to Charles had to move slowly and take cover as they approached the towers. A small group was also using underground maintenance tunnels to approach. Officer Ray Martinez was off duty when he heard about the shooting and had called in to see what he could do to help. Now, when he had arrived, he was originally going to help with traffic, but when he saw that that was already taken care of, he moved towards the tower. Alan Crum was a retired Air Force officer who worked on campus. He was a manager of one of the stores, and he had offered to assist as well. Officer Jeffrey Day was on duty and had been called to the scene, and he was accompanied by Department of Public Safety agent Dub Cohen. Now, the four men made their way to the observation deck and were then joined by another officer on duty, Houston McCoy. Martinez and McCoy rounded the northeastern corner of the observation deck while Charles was looking south. Martinez fired on Charles with his revolver but missed, and McCoy hit Charles twice with his shotgun. Martinez then took took McCoy's shotgun from him, having emptied his own weapon, and fired a final shot into Charles at point-blank range. The rampage had lasted less than two hours, with most of the deaths and injuries occurring in the first 15 to 20 minutes. 14 people were murdered, and 32 were injured. In letters that Charles had wrote prior to the killings, he had requested that his brain be examined to try to explain the change that he had been seeing in himself over the past few months. Upon police autopsy, a tumor the size of a nickel was found. This tumor, called a glioblastoma, had blossomed from beneath a structure called the thalamus, impinged on the hypothalamus, and compressed a third region called the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is involved in emotional regulation, especially of fear and aggression. Now, there have been different opinions from different specialists on, is this truly what caused this change in his behavior? Were there other factors? Was he already a ticking time bomb because of his past? But it could explain a lot, the fact that they, he had this tumor pressing on his amygdala could explain why sort of out of the blue he started to have these violent urges and all of these other mental health problems that were going on. I also read an article that was written by a student at the University
University of Texas who witnessed the shootings. And he had actually gone to this psychiatrist that Charles had visited a few months prior with his wife because they were struggling in their marriage. They were thinking of getting a divorce. They were both very depressed. And so they had gone separately to this psychiatrist. And he describes it as the entire time in the appointment with the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist was on the phone. He wasn't really listening. He prescribed him a medication and was done with it. He he wasn't really listening to what was going on and sort of wrote him off. And so it made him question what Charles's experience had truly been with that psychiatrist. And even in interviews after this shooting, the psychiatrist testified that Charles had talked about going to the observation deck and doing this. In his actual meeting with the psychiatrist, he had described this exact situation, but the psychiatrist wrote it off because, again, at that time, it just wasn't even a possibility in his mind that he would actually go through with it. So I know today, if he would, if this were to happen today, making those threats like, okay, I'm going to go to the university and I'm going to go to the observation tower and I'm going to take guns and I'm going to start shooting people. The fact that he has a military background and that he's complaining of these mental health issues and he has access to weapons, that there's something called a Tarasov threat, that if you're a danger to yourself or someone else, therapists can act in breaking confidentiality to get them help or to warn authorities. But back then, like you said, this wasn't a common occurrence. Mass shootings were not a common occurrence. And so the fact that you said that this psychiatrist or psychologist really didn't seem to take his job seriously and was multitasking doing other things during sessions, yeah, he wouldn't have said a thing. And that's kind of a shame because he did exactly what he said he was going to do. Which, I mean, again, we've said this a million times. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and who knows what really happened in those sessions. I mean, it's hard for us to judge it for now, but I think that it's just us trying to, to understand what happened and how could it have been prevented. So a criminal discourse life tip, Maddie? I think just if you're having mental health problems, don't be afraid to seek help and to stay with that help. I, I know that Charles went to a psychiatrist at one point and then didn't follow through with it. So if there's something where you're feeling something, you're thinking something, and it just doesn't seem right, or you see a change in yourself, don't be afraid to seek out that help. We all need help. We all need assistance at, at points in our lives. And don't be afraid to go out and do that. Absolutely. And times are different. You know, back even when I was growing up in the 80s, you didn't talk about mental health issues. Nobody talked about depression or anxiety or struggling with personal things. But times are changed. Thank God, you know, that we can talk about those things and we can have that conversation. So do not, as Maddie said, be afraid to reach out for help. Okay. That's all we've got. Okay. Well, thank you, Maddie. That was a good episode. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Again, if you haven't had an opportunity, check out our website at Criminal Discourse Podcast podcast.com. And we would only ask that whatever platform you listen to us on to subscribe and give us a rating. We would appreciate it. Anything to add, Maddie? No, I know you guys are out there. Just let us know that you're out there. They are out there and we are growing. So we appreciate it. Word of mouth, spread it around, share it with your friends. And again, if you want to contact us, even with questions, we can share those questions in the podcast. We would appreciate it. So until next time, guys, remember, if you see something, say something. You may have that missing piece to the puzzle that it'll take to solve a crime. And as always, we want you to be safe, but also let's be kind to one another. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.